This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of leg calve perthes disease from the pediatric section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. Leg calve perthes disease is an idiopathic avascular necrosis of the proximal femoral epiphysis in children. Diagnosis can be suspected with hip radiographs. MRI may be required for diagnosis of occult or early disease. Treatment is typically observation in children less than 8 years of age and femoral and or pelvic osteotomy in children greater than 8 years of age. Now, let's get into the episode. As far as the epidemiology, leg calve perthes disease affects 1 in 10,000 children. As far as the demographics, 4 to 8 years old is the most common age of presentation for leg calve perthes disease. The male-to-female ratio is 5 to 1. There is a higher incidence in urban areas. It tends to be higher among lower socioeconomic classes. There's also a higher incidence in high latitude and low incidence around the equator. And finally, Caucasians are more affected than East Asian and African Americans. As far as the location of leg calve perthes disease, it's bilateral in 12% of cases, and there is asymmetrical and asynchronous involvement. And keep in mind that it's rarely at the same stage of disease. Symmetrical involvement suggests multiple epiphyseal dysplasia. Risk factors of leg calve perthes disease include a positive family history, a low birth weight, abnormal birth position, secondhand smoke, as well as Asian, Inuit, and Central European descent. The pathophysiology of leg calve perthes disease is osteonecrosis occurs secondary to disruption of the blood supply to the femoral head. This is followed by revascularization with subsequent resorption and later collapse. Creeping substitution provides a pathway for remodeling after collapse. Some proposed mechanisms include that there's a possible association with abnormal clotting factors like protein S and protein C deficiencies. However, this is a controversial etiology. Thrombophilia has been reported to be present in 50% of patients, however, and there's up to 75% of affected patients that have some form of coagulopathy. Other proposed mechanisms include repeated subclinical trauma and mechanical overload that lead to bone collapse and repair. This is known as the multiple infarction theory. Damages result from epiphyseal bone resorption, collapse, and the effect of subsequent repair during the course of the disease. Finally, another proposed mechanism is maternal-slash-passive smoking. As far as associated conditions with leg calve perthes disease, it's associated with ADHD in 33% of cases. In addition, bone age is delayed in 89% of patients. Now, let's go over some different classification systems of leg calve perthes disease. But keep in mind that the lateral pillar classification has the best agreement and tends to be the most predictive. The stages of leg calve perthes disease, according to the Waldenstrom classification, includes the initial phase, the fragmentation phase, the reossification phase, and the healing or remodeling phase. The initial phase is characterized by infarction that produces a smaller sclerotic epiphysis with medial joint space widening. Radiographs may remain occult for three to six months in the initial phase. Fragmentation begins with the presence of a subchondral lucent line, otherwise known as the crescent sign, and the femoral head appears to fragment or dissolve. The fragmentation phase is the result of the revascularization process, with bone resorption producing collapse with subsequent patchy density and lucencies. Keep in mind that hip-related symptoms are most prevalent in the fragmentation phase, and the lateral pillar classification is based on this stage. Remember that the fragmentation phase can last from 6 months to 2 years. 
the reossification stage is when the ossific nucleus undergoes reossification with new bone appearing as necrotic bone is resorbed. This may last up to 18 months. Finally, the healing or remodeling stage is when the femoral head remodels until skeletal maturity. This begins once the ossific nucleus is completely reossified and then the trabecular patterns return. Moving on to the lateral pillar or herring classification, this is divided into four groups. Group A, Group B, the B-C border, and Group C. Group A corresponds to the lateral pillar maintaining full height with no density changes identified. Group A has a consistently good outcome. Group B maintains greater than 50% height and has a poor outcome in patients with a bone age of greater than 6 years. The B-C border is when the lateral pillar is narrowed 2-3 to millimeters or poorly ossified with approximately 50% height. This is a recently added group to increase consistency and prognosis of the classification. Group C is when less than 50% of the lateral pillar height is maintained, and this has poor outcomes in all patients. The lateral pillar classification is determined at the beginning of the fragmentation stage and usually occurs six months after the onset of symptoms. The lateral pillar classification is based on the height of the lateral pillar of the capital femoral epiphysis on AP imaging of the pelvis. The lateral pillar classification has the best inter-observer agreement and is designed to provide prognostic information. The limitation, however, is that the final classification is not possible at initial presentation due to the fact that the patient needs to have entered into the fragmentation stage radiographically. Moving on to the catarol classification, this is divided into four groups. Group 1 is when there's involvement of the anterior epiphysis only. Group 2 is when there's involvement of the anterior epiphysis with a central sequestrum. Group 3 is when only a small part of the epiphysis is not involved. And group 4 is when there's total head involvement. The catarol classification is based on the degree of head involvement, and at-risk signs indicate a more severe disease course. This includes the gauge sign when there's a V-shaped radiolucency in the lateral portion of the epiphysis and or adjacent metaphysis. Other at-risk signs include calcification lateral to the epiphysis, lateral subluxation of the femoral head, horizontal proximal femoral physis, as well as a metaphyseal cyst, which is added later to the original four at-risk signs described by Catterall. The Salter-Thompson classification is divided into two classes. Class A is when the crescent sign involves less than one-half of the femoral head, and Class B is when the crescent sign involves greater than one-half of the femoral head, and this is based on the radiographic crescent sign. Finally, the Stolberg classification is the gold standard for rating residual femoral head deformity and joint congruence. However, recent studies show poor inter-observer and intra-observer reliability of this classification. Patients with leg calve perthes disease present with symptoms of insidious onset. They may have a painless limp or present with intermittent hip, knee, groin, or thigh pain. Physical exam may reveal hip stiffness, that is specifically loss of internal rotation and abduction. Gait disturbances, such as an antalgic limp or a Trendelenburg gait, when the head collapse leads to decreased tension of the abductors. Keep in mind that limb length discrepancy is a late finding, and hip abduction contracture can exacerbate the apparent leg length discrepancy. As far as imaging, recommended radiographs include an AP of the pelvis and a frog leg lateral, which is critical in the diagnosis and prognosis. Early findings include medial joint space widening, which is the earliest finding, from less ossification of the head. This is measured between the teardrop and the ossification center. 
Other early findings include irregularity of the femoral head ossification, which manifests as decreased size of the ossification center and a sclerotic appearance. Finally, a crescent sign represents a subchondral fracture. A bone scan can confirm suspected cases of leg calve perthes disease. Decreased uptake or a cold lesion can predate changes on radiographs. This provides information on the extent of the femoral head involvement. An MRI can provide early diagnosis revealing alterations in the capital femoral epiphysis and physis. Keep in mind that an MRI is more sensitive than a radiograph. Perfusion studies can predict the maximum extent of lateral pillar involvement. And a dynamic arthrogram can demonstrate coverage and containment of the femoral head. As far as histological studies, the femoral epiphysis and physis exhibit areas of disorganized cartilage with areas of hypercellularity and fibrillation. The differential diagnosis of leg calve perthes disease include an infectious etiology such as septic arthritis, osteomyelitis, or pericapsular pyomyositis. Other diagnoses on the radiographic differential include transient synovitis, multiple epiphyseal dysplasia, spondyloepiphyseal dysplasia, sickle cell disease, Gaucher's disease, hypothyroidism, or Myers dysplasia. As far as treatment of leg calve perthes disease, Goals of treatment include resolution of symptoms, restoration of range of motion, and containment of the hip. NSAIDs, traction, and or crutches can help with resolution of symptoms. As far as restoration of range of motion, keep in mind that physical therapy may actually exacerbate symptoms. However, things like muscle lengthenings and petri casting may help with restoration of range of motion. As far as containment of the hip, improving range of motion, bracing, proximal femoral osteotomy, and pelvic osteotomies ensure that the femoral head is well-seated in the acetabulum. Treatment of leg calve perthes disease can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes observation alone, activity restriction, specifically non-weight-bearing, and physical therapy with range of motion exercises. And this is indicated for children less than 8 years of age with a bone age of less than 6 years, as young patients typically do not benefit from surgery. Other indications include a lateral pillar A involvement. The technique involves activity restriction and protected weight-bearing during earlier stages until reossification is complete. The main goals of treatment are to keep the femoral head contained and maintain good motion. Containment limits deformity and minimizes loss of sphericity, and this lessens subsequent degenerative changes. Bracing and casting for containment have not been found to be beneficial in a large prospective study. All patients require periodic clinical and radiographic follow-up until the completion of the disease process. As far as outcomes, good outcomes correlate with a spherical femoral head. 60% do not require operative intervention, and good outcomes are associated with lateral pillar A and cataral group 1. Operative options include femoral and or pelvic osteotomy, valgus and or shelf osteotomies, hip arthroscopy, and hip arthrodiastasis. Femoral and or pelvic osteotomy is indicated for children over 8 years of age, especially lateral pillar B and B-C. The technique involves a proximal femoral varus osteotomy to provide containment and or a pelvic osteotomy, specifically a Salter or triple inanimate osteotomy or a shelf arthroplasty may be performed to prevent lateral subluxation and resultant lateral epiphyseal overgrowth. As far as outcomes, Children with lateral pillar A and those with B under 8 years of age did well regardless of treatment. Large recent studies show improved outcomes with surgery for lateral pillar B and B-C in children over 8 years of age with a bone age of greater than 6 years. 
Studies suggest earlier surgery before femoral head deformity develops may be best, and poor outcomes are seen with lateral pillar C regardless of treatment. As far as valgus and or shelf osteotomies, the indications include hinge abduction, where lateral extrusion of the capital femoral epiphysis produces a painful hinge effect on the lateral acetabulum during abduction. An abduction extension osteotomy can be used to reposition the hinge segment away from the acetabular margin. This can be used to correct shortening from fixed adduction and improve the abductor mechanism by improving the abductor muscle contractile length. Shelf or Chiari osteotomies are also considered when the femoral head is no longer containable. Hip arthroscopy is an emerging treatment modality for mechanical abnormalities in the setting of a healed leg calvae perthes disease. It's usually specifically used for femoral acetabular impingement in this setting. Hip arthrodiastasis has controversial indications and outcomes. However, the technique involves hip distraction via external fixation. A proximal femoral varus osteotomy is indicated for extrusion in the early stages of leg calvae perthes disease, and the technique is to reposition the femoral head into the acetabulum for containment purposes. Some complications to be aware of include femoral head deformity, lateral hip subluxation or extrusion, premature physeal arrest, acetabular dysplasia, labral injury, osteochondritis desiccans, and degenerative arthritis. Femoral head deformity can include coxa magna, or a widened femoral head, or coxa plana, which is a flattened femoral head. Femoral head deformity is an important prognostic factor that is the basis of the Stolberg classification. Lateral hip subluxation or extrusion is associated with a poor prognosis and can lead to hinge abduction. Premature physeal arrest can cause trochanteric overgrowth, coxa breva or a shortened femoral neck, or leg length discrepancy, which is typically mild. Acetabular dysplasia is poor development secondary to a deformed femoral head, which can alter hip congruency. Labral injury can be secondary to femoral head deformity, which can cause femoral acetabular impingement. Osteochondritis desiccans can lead to loose fragments. And finally, as far as degenerative arthritis, Stolberg 1 and most Stolberg 2 hips perform well for the lifetime of the patient. As far as the prognosis, important prognostic variables include younger age, that is a bone age of less than 6 years at presentation, which is the most important good prognostic indicator. Other important prognostic variables include the sphericity of the femoral head and congruency at skeletal maturity. This is known as the Stolberg classification. Finally, which group in the lateral pillar classification can be another important prognostic variable. Variables of poor prognosis in leg calvae perthes disease include female sex, decreased hip abduction, otherwise known as adduction contracture, a heavy patient, longer duration from onset to completion of healing, stiffness with progressive loss of range of motion, as well as catarol, quote, head at risk signs. As far as the natural history of the disease, long-term studies suggest that most patients do well until the fifth or sixth decades of life. Approximately one-half of patients develop premature osteoarthritis secondary to an aspherical femoral head. Keep in mind that leg calvae perthes disease is a self-limiting process, and it has a variable course to final healing from the initial ischemic event, and this can take two to five years to resolve. Leg calvae perthes disease is differentiated from adult osteonecrosis by its ability to heal and remodel. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. The first question reads, A four-year-old boy has had an isolated painful limp for the past month. 
He's diagnosed with leg calve perthes disease that involves nearly all of his capital femoral epiphysis. Which of the following best describes his prognosis? And the choices are 1. A spherical, painless hip at maturity. 2. An incongruous hip joint at maturity. 3. Likely spontaneous hip fusion. 4. A 30-40% to 40% chance of a poor outcome. And 5. Rapid recovery with minimal sequelae. The correct answer to this question is for a 30 to 40% chance of a poor outcome. So this young child with total head involvement of leg calve perthes disease is at some risk of a poor outcome due to the extent of his disease. Most children of this age will recover well with a good outcome. He is more likely to end up with a spherical femoral head than an older child with the same extent of involvement. Moving on to the next question. The clinical factors shown to most significantly predict the long-term outcome of Perthes disease of the hip includes which of the following? And the choices are 1. Limb length discrepancy and range of motion of the hip. 2. Age of presentation and range of motion of the hip. 3. Age of presentation and limb length discrepancy. 4. Range of motion, pain slash limp for more than 6 months. And 5. Limb length discrepancy and pain slash limp for more than 6 months. The correct answer to this question is 2, age of presentation and range of motion of the hip. So age of presentation and range of motion of the hip are the two most significant predictors of long-term outcome. Younger patients and patients who maintain range of motion of the hip are more likely to have a good outcome. In Herring's study, children with a chronologic age of younger than 8 years or a bone age of less than 6 years had significantly more favorable outcomes compared with older children. Limited hip range of motion may be due to muscle spasm early on or synovitis, but in late disease, it may reflect incongruity of the joint. Classifications based on femoral head shape have also been correlated to prognosis. Significant shortening of the affected hip is not common. Moving on to the next question. A radiograph of an otherwise healthy Caucasian 5-year-old boy who has a painless limp shows leg calve perthes disease. What is the best treatment option? And the choices are 1. Shelf procedure, 2. Salter osteotomy, 3. Chiari osteotomy, 4. Varus derotation osteotomy, and 5. Physical therapy and range of motion exercises. The correct answer to this question is 5. Physical therapy and range of motion exercises. So the prognosis of leg calve perthes disease in children younger than age 6 is good. There is no indication that surgical treatment will improve the outcome. Range of motion exercises to prevent contracture may be helpful. Moving on to the next question. A 9-year-old male is brought in for initial evaluation of persistent painless limping favoring the left leg. His symptoms began 6 months ago and have been progressively worsening. He has nearly full abduction. Radiographs and an MRI demonstrate density changes and collapse of the femoral head consistent with lateral pillar group B. What is the next most appropriate step in treatment? And the choices are 1. Left hip aspiration and culture under fluoroscopic guidance. 2. Continued activity limitation and bracing. 3. Femoral or pelvic osteotomy. 4. Core decompression of the femoral head. And 5. Workup for underlying metabolic bone disease. The correct answer to this question is 3, femoral or pelvic osteotomy. 
So this patient is presenting with late-stage leg calve perthes disease. The radiographs and MRI scan demonstrate density changes and collapse of the femoral head consistent with lateral pillar group B. Herring et al. evaluated the effect of leg calve perthes disease treatment on outcome. They found that patients over 8 years old at the time of onset with a hip in the lateral pillar B group or B-C border group had a better outcome with surgical treatment including either a femoral or pelvic osteotomy. Group B hips in children less than 8 years old at the time of the onset had favorable outcomes unrelated to treatment, whereas group C hips in children of all ages frequently have poor outcomes regardless of treatment. McAndrew et al. performed an average 47-year follow-up of patients with leg calve perthes disease. Significant correlations were found between clinical outcome and catarrhal head at-risk signs, femoral head size ratio, and age at onset of the disease. Moving on to the next question. A six-year-old boy presents with left leg pain and limping. Radiographs reveal findings consistent with leg calve perthes disease. The radiographic changes necessary for accurate lateral pillar classification of his disease are usually evident how long after the onset of symptoms. And the choices are one, one month, two, three months, three, six months, four, 12 months, and five, 18 months. The correct answer to this question is three, six months. So the lateral pillar classification of leg calve perthes disease is determined from anteroposterior radiographs of the pelvis made in the early fragmentation stage of the disease. The lateral pillar is defined as the lateral portion of the femoral head on the anteroposterior radiograph that is demarcated from the central portion of the head by a lucent line of fragmentation. Herring et al. performed a prospective multicenter study to define more clearly the lateral pillar classification of severity and the Stolberg classification of outcome in children with leg calve perthes disease. With regards to the lateral pillar classification, they found that fragmentation occurred at an average of six months after the onset of symptoms. Furthermore, they added a B-C lateral pillar classification group to include those patients with border hips that would not easily fit into either group B or group C. They concluded that their modification of the lateral pillar classification was sufficiently reliable and accurate for use in studies of leg calve perthes disease. And moving on to the final question, for children with leg calve perthes disease, all of the following factors are associated with femoral head incongruity and worse clinical outcomes except, and the choices are 1, maintenance of less than 50% of lateral pillar height, 2, presentation at 5 years of age, 3. Lateral subluxation of the femoral head. 4. Calcification lateral to the epiphysis. And 5. Presence of a radiolucency in the shape of a V in the lateral portion of the epiphysis, otherwise known as the gauge sign. The correct answer to this question is 2. Presentation at 5 years of age. So leg calve perthes disease of children in which the vascular supply to the femoral head is compromised leading to avascular necrosis of the femoral head and can subsequently result in resorption, collapse, and repair. Children who present at an age less than 6 years have an improved prognosis. Catterall described five at-risk signs which indicate a more severe disease including one, the gauge sign which is a radiolucency in the shape of a V in the lateral portion of the epiphysis, two, calcification lateral to the epiphysis, 3. Lateral subluxation of the femoral head, 4. A horizontal physis, and 5. Metaphyseal cysts. 
The study by Herring et al. is a retrospective review of his classification system. This lateral pillar classification initially included grades A, B, and C, and later added a BC border group. A herring C-hip characterized by less than 50% of the lateral pillar height being maintained is the worst prognostic category, with most children ultimately developing aspherical femoral heads. That's all for this review about leg calvae perthes disease. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow OrthoBullets on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the OrthoBullets podcast.